Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a man who has been putting minimalism and urbanism on people's minds. Adrian Crook is the author of Five Kids, One Condo, a blog about living in a thousand square foot downtown Vancouver apartment, two bedrooms, two bathrooms with, you guessed it, five kids. Now some of you might be asking the question, how? But for Adrian, it's actually been a part of intentionally striving towards ditching the excess and ending up with a better quality of life. Here's his story. Adrian, you are a self-described minimalist and urbanist. Why is that? Uh, I think, like, actually, at first it happens that other people describe you as that, and then you realize that that's what you are. Certainly that was the case with minimalism. I've always kept a pretty sparse house, so if you come over, you might think we've sort of just been robbed or we're halfway through moving or something. (laughs) And then after a while, like, when I started posting stuff more about it, then people would sort of say, oh, you're a minimalist. And, like, minimalism to me always meant the stuff that you see in Dwell magazine. It's become a little less so these days with, like, guys like the minimalists and all that stuff that mm-hmm. have made it less about fashion and more about function. Um, so I didn't really self-identify with the minimalist angle because I don't have any, like, really expensive furniture or sharp angles. <laughs> right. But uh, but functionally, yeah, I'm a minimalist because uh, it just makes life a lot more simple and straightforward. And, and that ties really well into the urbanism angle because – Living downtown, you know, it's so simple and straightforward just to get everywhere on foot or on bike. There's not, uh, you know, the rigmarole of a car and, and, you know, commuting and parking involved. So it's all kind of an effort to kind of streamline life and make things more about the people that you care about rather than things. Right. Uh, Now, you live downtown Vancouver, trying to paint the picture here, with five kids in in about a thousand square foot condo. If you could paint the picture of, of what your condo looks like. Yeah, sure. So it's in a neighborhood called Yale Town. Vancouver's neighborhoods are tiny. They're like, you know, a few blocks each, really. So it's it's almost laughable sometimes when you like draw lines between them. But uh, Yale Town, you know, is a specific neighborhood. It mostly got built in the 90s, a lot of glass towers. Uh, it's sort of a formal or former industrial or more like a textile warehouse kind of area, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's not much of that left. Um, so I live on the 29th floor. It's 1,053 square feet, two bedroom, two bathroom. Uh, like I guess they call it like a den or a solarium, but it just looks like a third bedroom. And uh, yeah, like I said, two bathrooms, which is pretty important. Uh, we have you know some pretty great views of the city and live within a few blocks of uh, several different parks. This part of the city is pretty pretty safe. I mean, really all of Vancouver is safe, even like the stuff that looks like it isn't is still pretty safe, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, so, so we live in this neighborhood and, uh, and it serves us pretty well. Cause like all the transit converges on this neighborhood as well. I'm guessing that you weren't born with, with this condo lifestyle from the beginning. I'm guessing you probably grew up a little bit differently. Uh, how and where did you grow up compared to, uh, where you are today? I grew up about uh, 25 clicks, like kilometers outside of where I am now in a suburb called Port Moody. And it's, you know, it was a pretty good childhood. Uh, We lived sort of close to, close-ish to nature, near to the beach, all that sort of stuff. You know, you drag like a, you drag a boat down to the beach and take off like, I don't even know what age I would have been doing that, like taking a, I think it might have been about grade seven, taking a aluminum boat with a 10 horsepower engine with my friend who was maybe like, 
a grade older than I am out, you know, just out around the inlet and off to sights unseen without a parent. You know, it's hilarious when you think of some of the crazy risks, you know, you took back then without even batting an eye compared to what we're comfortable with today. But, uh, yeah, so I had that, you know, very much like a left alone kind of childhood, uh, just play at night until it's well past dark and come in when you're ready and, uh, and build tree forts all the time and design board games. And that was really about it, really kind of like industrious, creative childhood. And was this like your, I, I wanted to say typical, but it's probably not so typical, uh, but, you know, a single detached house that you were growing up in or, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just in a single detached house neighborhood. And it's funny, I got a message from somebody who, an older person that knew me from when I lived in that neighborhood as a kid. And she was talking about how now they're proposing building 37 story towers in that neighborhood and not just precisely that neighborhood, but on a, you know, in a part of Port Moody because they do have the same housing uh, crisis that everywhere here has. And Mm -hmm. so it's, you know, it's changing and it's going to have to change necessarily to accommodate that. I think we do still collectively have this idea of what uh, we idealize. We're going to, at some point, you know, buy a home and it's going to be single detached and it's going to have, you know, a backyard and, and, Mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things. Uh, When did you start thinking about going the condo route? Ah, good question. I guess when I first moved out, um, I, when I first moved out, I moved into like a, it's like a fourplex and I shared that with a friend and that was, you know, that was pretty cool. That was a little bit closer to downtown, but not much. And then when I moved out of that place, I moved into my own sort of 600 square foot apartment, you know, back then, I think it was like the late nineties and you could have bought that brand new apartment for about a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally ridiculous. But um, that was literally across the street from where I live now in a slightly newer building, not much, like a few years newer. And I just loved the, you know, I got rid of, did I even have a car at that point? I'm not sure, but I didn't have a car when I lived there. And I would just um, SkyTrain and bus to work because I worked sort of out in the suburbs. And you could just walk everywhere. And, you know, it sort of sold me at that point. And, you know, I've sort of bounced between house living and, and condo living for the years in between then and now, um, just as your circumstances dictated, you know, sometimes it's not always up to you when you get partners involved and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, then eventually it was, you know, when you just have a chance to kind of assess what means the most to you and how you want to structure your life. I think it wasn't until like the last, geez, half decade that I started getting an understanding of what made me happy in an urban environment. And like that, that sort of uh, that tag of urbanist or, you know, however sort of colloquial and non-academic it is, because you know, I have no academic training and anything to do with city planning or anything. But it at least like hints at the fact that at some point I came to understand why the built environment of an urban area is more satisfying to me than a suburban or sort of sp- spread out or sprawly one. And that's why I chose to do this. And, and why is it more satisfying to you? Well, so many things. I mean, obviously, there's a natural freedom of not needing uh, to be constrained by a car. And there's so many things that go into that. I mean, you know, cars, obviously, even aside from the costs and the safety concerns of of operating a car, they're also horribly isolating and they waste huge amounts of your time because they require you to operate them instead of being able to do anything else while you're transporting yourself somewhere. Uh, they cut you off from making social connections, you know, the, so expanding back out to like the, the urban environment, I think when I was going through my divorce, like back in 2013, I had, we had just moved back from Mexico and I had to decide like where I wanted to live. And, 
And I knew that if I had put myself in a suburb, that I wouldn't be close to the social connections I needed and just the fabric of life, quite frankly, uh, to you know get through what is pro- uh, like one of the most emotionally trying times of anyone's life if you've ever gone through you know a divorce and that sort of stuff. So being able to like walk out the door and bump into friends that you didn't you know even plan on bumping into or you know pop out for even an hour if you're not feeling up to doing much and uh, and you know drop in on a a small get together or what have you. It's this kind of stuff that when you're in the suburbs, it all just seems like too much of a bother and you don't do it, you know? And it's like that lack of of friction between, you know, like yesterday I was, I was meal prepping in the kitchen in pajamas. And then I remember there was like a a curator's tour of like a local art gallery and the art gallery is like four blocks away. So just threw on some clothes, ran up there, did the art gallery tour, was back in 45 minutes, you know, continued doing all the meal prep, you know, like, that's the kind of stuff that just is not possible. And that happens uh, from a kid's perspective as well. Like there are lots of things. We'll just be wandering the city and pop into the art gallery, you know, like a, a more, you know, Vancouver's major art gallery, the larger one, instead of the one I went to the other day. And we can just pop into places that otherwise you'd have to make a big day out of. And and it's that just that type of like ease of access and connection. And um, for me, though, the larger the larger issues of sustainability, like we can't all live in sprawled out uh, detached houses. It's way less efficient, uses way more resources. It's not something I want to show my kids. When you were making that decision, uh, did you have all five kids at that point or were there more on the way? No, I had all five kids at that point. The youngest one was born in 2012. So, but you know, it was like the youngest one was one years old, but. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, we have, we tend to have this idea of what a condo is and we think of maybe one or two people living in a condo, sometimes more, but almost never six. Yeah. Uh, what reaction did you get from from friends or loved ones when you first started uh, going in that direction? You know, you got five kids with you and you think, yeah, I think we can make it work in a condo. Yeah, I think people have a real knee-jerk reaction. These are usually people that don't have a lot of first-hand experience living this way. But they think that you're sort of you're doing it just so you can you know I don't know party or be go to bars haven't been to a club or a bar in years. <laughs> That's not what it is about. Um, so they kind of think that you're making a selfish choice because really you just want to continue living uh, you know an exciting life or whatever. And there are a lot of amazing things. Vancouver is one of the best places to raise a family in the world, quite frankly. So it is you know it has le- much less to do with just my selfishness around uh, you know wanting to live an exciting life. So I get, you know, and then there's also like the set, like my, uh, I think my dad and, and my mom, quite frankly, uh, were separated themselves, but they both have very fairly consistent sort of what I would call like boomer environmentalism or pastoral environmentalism beliefs where like mm-hmm. the most environmental way you can live on the land is just, uh, with lots of trees around your big house. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, you know, my hydro bill is about a 10th of what yours is my electricity bill. Uh, you know, like we are objectively speed by any objective measure, like living lighter on the land than anyone living in a single family home. And that's, uh, you know, you can sort of recycle all you want or compost all you want. It doesn't make up for the fact that like I live in a smaller place and don't own a car. And those are probably the two biggest decisions you can make to lower your footprint short of not having kids in the first place, which is probably the biggest thing you could do to not, <laughs> not overburden the earth. But, uh, you know, the ship sailed on that one. So now oh, yeah. I'm up for it elsewhere. Uh, the car part is interesting, and I want to get to that later. But I think uh, you brought up something interesting as well with the idea of, of boomer environmentalism. How much do you think our attachment to this this concept of a single detached home 
How much do you think of that stems from this romantic of ideal of, you know, a so-called nuclear family and what we've called in the past the American dream? Oh, yeah. Huge amounts of it. I mean, this is, we had this little blip, this sort of post-war blip where everyone was supposed to go and get this house in the suburbs and drive two cars. And that got sort of codified in the minds of a generation or two as being like the, maybe even only a generation, really, like the boomers, our parents, as like the de facto way to raise kids. And the rest of the world hasn't really suffered from this as much. Like, you know, what I'm doing living in a condo with a, you know, a fairly large family by North American standards is wouldn't warrant like a, you know, a line of ink in any other newspaper around the world. (laughs) It's not unique, you know, but here, because we've been taught that, you know, that that is the gold standard is that house with the yard and, uh, you know, and that's the only way to raise kids, uh, despite, uh, you know, there being very little evidence to support that is, uh, is still regarded as the way to go. So, yeah, I think that, and that's also holding up a lot of our progress from a city perspective. So Vancouver, like, you know, Toronto or other major coastal cities has, you know, a major housing crisis. And a lot of it is caused by, uh, we've got a huge amount of single family home zoning. So 80% of our residential land here in Vancouver is zoned only for single family homes. And so when we, you know, when we're sort of casting about trying to figure out how to accommodate growth, we're looking at sensitive neighborhoods like, say, you know, Chinatown in Vancouver and putting like, you know, 15, 20, 30 story towers there because we've got to cram as many people as we can, where instead we should be unlocking all those single family home zones for at least low rise apartment buildings. But there's so much entrenched money and interest there that wants those neighborhoods to stay sort of cast in amber. And that's what, uh, about a year ago, me and some colleagues started a group called Abundant Housing Vancouver. That's exactly what we uh, we are pushing to change, really, is like trying to push forward that understanding of land use, that we actually don't have a shortage of land. We're just using it really inefficiently. And uh, and how that might change on a government of policy level to unlock more housing for people. And like it or not, you know, that's, that's how people are going to be living in the future, is in multifamily dwellings like this one. And not, we're not all suddenly going to be able to, re, you know, return housing prices to a third of what they are today. How receptive have you found city councillors and MLAs to be uh, with regards to uh, abundant housing? Well, the city would love to unlock loads of development secretly. <laughs> not even that secretly, quite frankly. Like Vancouver's constantly, uh, our current um, mayor and council are constantly accused of being too pro-development. I would argue that they've been not pro-development enough, or at least not in the right areas. So. What they're doing is approving large projects in areas that are already approved for uh, large projects, and whether or not they should be built there is another matter. Um, when you sort of press them on unlocking, you know, our most valuable land, land that's right near public beaches and or public universities, uh, like say Northwest Point Grey. I don't know. You're probably not familiar with where that is, but like I was in Vancouver last summer, so I have an idea. If you're talking okay. about close to you know UBC and Pacific Spirit, exactly. They're about to build like a multi-billion-dollar subway line that's going to run two blocks away from it. You know, well, if it, if they push it right out to the university, it would. But in any case, like that's the kind of land that shouldn't be zoned for you know mansions, which is what it's zoned for right now. Like the minimum lot size is 150 by 150 feet. You know, it should be zoned for multifamily housing. So that trying to make that argument is much harder because, you know, those are millionaires and billionaires that own that land, not uh, and they, you know, they're probably big donors. So, uh, so yeah, you know, there's big there are big changes that are needed, but um, it's t- you know it's going to be tough to make them. 
minimalism as I've seen it, or at least minimalism not in, I suppose, the, the fashion sense or, you know, minimalism as we've come to see it lately often goes hand in hand with uh, this idea of letting go, whether that's letting go of the things we buy or accumulate uh, for no other reason than we just like having stuff and the idea that more is seen as better. And that's not always easy to let go, I think. What has that looked like for you? Well, I was, uh, you know, I, I've always, like I said, I've sort of always been a minimalist. Even when I was married, uh, I don't think we had quite as much stuff as most other people, still more stuff than I wanted. But, and then when I, you know, uh, split up, I started from scratch really in terms of stuff. Well, so that's very helpful. If you ever need to like figure out what you need and don't need, just like give everything to your ex and then start over. <laughs> it's a really great way to go about doing it. So that, you know, then I just got whatever I most needed. So like a couch off Craigslist. And that's the other thing. Like, I don't like having things that I don't, that I put it, put it this way, that I worry about getting damaged because that's sort of psychological space that should be taken up with more important things. If I'm worried about using something, uh, it's like having a negative effect on my quality of life rather than a positive one. Mm-hmm. So as far as getting rid of stuff, like if I, um, if I'm trying to figure out if I should get rid of something, like. So I've had a GoPro for a while. I barely used it. Um, but then I thought, well, maybe that's because it's tucked away in the closet. So now I've got it sitting out, ready to go, basically fully charged on my bookshelf. And I haven't really used it. <laughs> Even still, it's been about a month. So that's, you know, that'll probably wind up being sold. I just And that's kind of a process I go through with things. If I put it out and neither me nor the kids use it, then why why do we have it at all? So you know, gradually you just sort of whittle down until you've only got the stuff that you really need. And then we live in a, you know, a place where you can borrow or rent things very easily. And that's way more economical than owning it outright or, or uh, storing it all the time yourself. I think the flip side of, of minimalism and, and of letting go of things, you often hear talk of purpose, of thinking of things and asking, you know, what purpose does it bring to my life or what value does it add to my life? What yep in your case, are the things that you've kept in, or the things that you found really hard to part with? Huh. Good question. I'm trying to look around here, trying to see what that would be. I don't really have too many things that, I mean, obviously the functional things like, you know, places to sleep and sit and eat, you know, are uh, pretty important. Uh, computers, but I don't have too many things that I'd have trouble getting rid of. I have things that I get a lot of use out of that if you took away, I'd be kind of bummed about like whiteboards and cork boards, you know, stuff that we use constantly to like scheme stuff. And you know, like, you know, we're constantly as a family using things like the whiteboard to remember to do things and to write notes to each other. And uh, so, I mean, it'd be stuff like that, more almost creative things than anything else. I don't think, uh, I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty lean here. <laughs> The kids like their video games, so uh-huh. they'd probably have trouble getting rid of like, you know, all of their video game stuff. They have like a computer, and we have a couple of video game consoles. That's my main profession as a video a game design consultant. So that's why I happen to be overloaded with tech. But that's about it. Do you walk into friends' homes or relatives' homes now, and you know, want to shake them and, and show them how much stuff they have that they don't need? I think it's whatever you're comfortable with. I mean, I you know, I think you're welcome to have as much stuff as you want. A lot of times though, people use their stuff as a justification for why they need a larger place. And that's, that I, kind of bothers me because like we don't need larger places. Usually your kids are not two or three times the size of mine. So you don't need a house that's two or three times my house, but you may need it if you're going to fill that garage full of stuff instead of a car. 
Right. So, you know, you can, I understand that stuff means things to people. Doesn't mean I have to live in that place. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the idea too, I suppose, you know, that you have an empty room, you got to fill it with something too. Yeah. And I know when I had a house, like I, you know, when I was uh, married, we had a house for a while in North Vancouver. It was about 2,500 square feet. And the irony is to me, you know, to be able to afford it, we ran like a, a licensed daycare out of the basement that took two thirds of the square footage of the basement. And then we had a second living room in the basement that we would only use occasionally. And then I had an office in the basement that I would use even less occasionally. So really we were living in about 1200 square feet, yeah. <laughs> you know, but then you sort of, for some reason you thought you needed this larger house and I would just feel so much resentment toward those rooms that were empty most of the time, because it's like, I'm paying for them. I'm not really using them why did I do this? You know? <laughs> so yeah, you know, I think uh, if you don't have a bunch of things, you can get by with a lot less space. So I guess if you have to start somewhere, start, you know, clearing out the things and seeing what you need. But I've watched a friend of mine, she moved from a place that was essentially like a bedroom and a large living room. And when I met her, it was just full of stuff. And then she moved into a place now that I think is about 300 square feet, maybe 250 in uh on the basically vancouver's downtown east side like a uh-huh. brick bachelor kind of thing and uh so she, you know she initially crammed a lot of her stuff in there she got got rid of a bunch of stuff but then over the last year she's been paring that down and paring that down and paring that down and now when you walk in there it's like a it's like an oasis it's gorgeous it like everything fits she has she's not missing anything so her life's gotten a lot more straightforward not having to lug around all this stuff and she's managed to know keep her costs down and live in a you know cool neighborhood at the same time i want to ask you about the difference between standard of living and quality of life something that you've written about before uh where do you where do you delineate between the two yeah for me standard of living is this measurement that uh sort of ties into the amount of um things you have or what you own and quality of life is is a measurement of you know how you're much you're actually enjoying life regardless of how much you own <laughs> so you know my standard of living may be less than that of my parents if you measure it by you know the fact that I don't have a house and I don't have a car and I don't have you know uh, recreational vehicles or property or all that kind of stuff but my quality of life because I'm walking everywhere because I'm in contact constantly with friends because they're all around me because I just generally more healthy because I'm not spending time in a, in a car. My quality of life is probably higher. I'm getting more out of life because I'm situated in a place where I'm able to get more out of life and I'm not having to maintain things or spend time commuting. And often when I go, I remember even being at my dad's place a number of months ago and their weekend to-do list looked more like a shopping list for Home Depot or like uh-huh. a, you know, a contractor's list for what you needed to do to fix the house. And you know, we'll be out riding our bikes on the weekend and passing people that, uh, you know, just like us, but that they're spending their time maintaining their house. And, you know, in this market, it's hard to argue with that. You're maintaining a lottery ticket that just, just keeps on delivering. Um, but on the other hand, like you, you're not guaranteed of tomorrow necessarily. And if you really want to spend time with the people you care about, your kids or your loved ones, it's in my opinion it's sort of incumbent upon you to clear the decks as much as you can and make the time and space to do that. And that's, that's why, you know, living in a place like this, I can just walk out the door and lock it and don't have to worry about anything. I'm not, I'm not re-shingling the roof or cleaning the gutters or <laughs> any, any such thing. Right. And I think part of that uh, with the, the difference between time and the, and the need to maintain 
uh, home is you know you've chosen to rent versus to to own and, and the differences that come with uh, you know being a tenant of a place where, where somebody will take care of things uh, what what were sort of the pros and, and cons that you uh, took account of in in that decision well, I mean you know it, it would be lovely to say that uh, I just decided objectively to rent versus uh, versus owning right. yeah. but if the you know if the numbers around owning made more sense in this city I might own pretty much only for, from a like security of tenure perspective, because uh, if you're not living in a purpose-built rental building, like one where the building is a rental building, and as long as you pay your rent, you get to stay there forever, then you don't have much security of tenancy. Uh, after your lease or, sort of runs out, the landlord could sell it or renovate or decide to reoccupy, and, uh, and you're sort of out on your butt. So right. really, uh, for me, you know... If I were to suddenly try to own this place, my expenses would more than double. So it doesn't make any sense to own it. Uh, so for me being self-employed, it makes a lot of sense to keep my fixed costs down, take the chance that, you know, we've been in here now for over four years. So it's kind of paid off this time around, but take the chance that we're not going to get kicked out. And then, like you said, things get fixed for you and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's not much that can go wrong. This is a concrete building. We've had a couple appliances, you know, go and need to get repaired. But I think the other thing that, renting guards me from versus owning is myself quite frankly and the urge to renovate i've mm -hmm. owned places in the past and you kind of just get bored and fidgety and you think maybe it'd be neat if the you know there wasn't a wall between the living room and the kitchen <laughs> or you know that that you, why should you deal with such a gaudy sort of older style bathroom and all these things you convince yourself you need and then you drop like tens of thousands of dollars upgrading them so as a renter i you know I've made some improvements here, but the scale of those improvements are in the hundreds of dollars, not in the thousands or tens of thousands. And I think that's a huge, you know, I don't like living in renovations. I don't know who does. And I don't like paying for them. Again, I don't like who does. So <laughs> I don't know who does. So that's really saved me from that is that basically my own weird urges to just fiddle with the dials, really, instead of doing meaningful things with life. <laughs> Okay, what about the decision not to own a car? Because as much as we are a culture in Canada and in North America more broadly that you know values its single detached homes and those larger properties, we very much value the idea of having a car and getting around by car. Yeah, and something, I think about 70% of people nationally take every single trip in a day by a car. So it's really quite counter that, especially in metro areas like downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver, when you have people without a car at all, and maybe they step in a car once a week or once every couple of weeks. And the health benefit that, uh, benefits of that are totally dramatic. Um, you know, I, I would take 10,000 steps on my average day before I even set foot in a gym. So you know, if you're driving yourself to your gym, you're starting from below where I've already, you know, arrived at the gym at basically. So, and as you know, that's why people in New York weigh like seven or eight pounds less than the national average in the States. Yeah. So there are, there's these sort of opportunities for ambient exercise that you get when you don't have a car and you live downtown. And, uh, and not having a car was like a mall sort of a multi-factor decision. There's obviously the cost angle, but honestly with five kids and now five kids taking buses and all sorts of other stuff, I think the cost is probably within like a grand or two, maybe three a year of what I was paying before. It's not super dramatic. 
uh, the savings. It's more the safety angle. Like, so the number one killer of kids ages five to 14, it, you know, is car accidents and specifically being a passenger in a car. Mm-hmm. So when I was driving my kids to school and I was driving them in like a 2003 Dodge Grand Caravan, like pretty much the most popular, but also crappiest <laughs> many possible, um, you know, that I was sort of acutely aware of the fact that we were just in a tin can and one false move by me or someone else and everyone's, you know, horribly injured or worse. So so I was in a you know, real hurry to get out of that situation, quite frankly, and also, uh, you know, teach them independence that you wouldn't get in a car. You know, if you're just chauffeuring your kids from stop to stop, you're not you know, having to interact with the larger world and, and learn your place in it. You mentioned you know, teaching your kids to take the bus. That's a story that has struck a chord across the country not too long ago, spreading about uh, you teaching your kids to take the, the bus by themselves to school and then getting a provincial order telling you not to do that anymore. Yeah. What kind of reactions have you heard from people since then? Well, I mean, I, I'm used to, like, I've written that blog now for, I think, at least a few years. And Obviously, five kids, one condo is like a sort of a heretical concept, even to some, as we've discussed, or, you know, even in this conversation. So I'm used to hearing two sides of every story. You know, I'll post something and there'll be support, but then there'll be people that just basically say I'm torturing my kids and they should never have to go through this. Um, (laughs) So I was kind of anticipating a similar two-sided debate on this issue, and I haven't had it really. Like, not so far. I've been fortunate that at this point, everyone's been very supportive. I've received hundreds of messages and on various, you know, everything from Facebook to email to Twitter or whatever, all very supportive. People like the, you know, the, one of our bus drivers writing saying he, you know, he'll vouch for how great they were. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if we need uh, any support, let them know. And, uh, fellow passengers on the bus in the morning who've read it saying the same thing that the kids are amazing. And, it's just, uh, yeah, it's been really refreshing, I guess. Um, you know, it's some validation. Uh, <laughs> so that's nice. Has, has there been an update? Uh, has, has the province, did they give it all? Have, have your kids been allowed to take the bus again? No, I haven't heard from the province. The province has directly or has sort of commented back to reporters. And uh, I think the deputy minister wrote a letter in the Globe and Mail. But it's a very... Um, it's a very stock kind of response about how there is no statutory age in, in BC and uh, every case is unique and so forth. And, you know, I've had conversations with other people that know more about how the ministry works. And, you know, there are different opinions on how, you, you know, unique each investigation is and, and whether there is actually an age on the ground, because there does actually seem to be an age on the ground that social workers gear everyone towards, uh, even if there's no age on the books. Do you think in this case it's just because you were blogging about it that they, you know, decided to shut you down, basically? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's, you know, it was an anonymous report, apparently, so I don't know who it would have come from. But, uh, like, I, you know, they're aware that I'm blogging about it, and that's probably why they took, you know, their time kind of coming up with their recommendation. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I I think... uh, I think it's tough once you like if somebody came to me and asked me to take responsibility for their kid and I didn't know their kid at all and if I you know screwed something up they would sue me I would probably put that kid in like a padded cell <laughs> <laughs> you know I don't know that kid's uh you know capabilities I don't really have time to assess right. it properly uh, but please don't get me in trouble and I think the ministry has been 
in trouble a few times over the years for not getting involved enough. And uh, I think it's easier just to lock something down from a liability perspective than it is to let a situation that you don't agree with continue, even if there's never been an incident as there hadn't been. Right. Or if it's not, you know, it's not a case of neglect, as they acknowledged, it was not a case of neglect. So I think, you know, I think if anything, there might be more of like an urban slant here that uh, there's sort of a perception that an urban environment is more dangerous than a um, than a suburban one based on some of the comments I had heard from them at the time. Mm-hmm. But who's to say? I think we'll get into it as we go forward now because um, I've raised about $40,000 for the legal aspect of this. And uh, we'll just slowly start marching towards figuring that side out, I guess. Uh, you've, you've talked a little bit about this already in our conversation, but I want to get back to this idea of, of commuting. Uh, I mean, commuting's part of it. Uh, I think renovations are another part of it, but the cost of time that people forget when they plan how to live their life. Uh, can you tell me about that, the importance of, of thinking of time when you're looking at, I suppose, a form of currency in its own? Yeah, and I th- people often forget that. Like, there's this idea that when you're buying a house, you just sort of drive until you can afford, and then when you're getting a job, you just get the highest paying job you can. And often those two are actually really far apart from one another. <laughs> the high paying job is downtown, and the house you can afford is far out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then people, that's where their calculations stop. And there's there's not this idea that not just the value of their time, but the value of their happiness uh, is, you know, that that's worth something and should enter into the calculation. So if you're spending an hour or two driving every day, let's say you're spending two hours, that's like a quarter of your, you know, your workday. So you're adding on another quarter of your workday. You could probably earn a quarter less and work right beside where you lived if you wanted to accept a job further out closer to where you bought your house. But that's just not the tr- way we're trained to think. I think we're trained to sort of go for that brass ring and regardless, and then the and then hunker down where we can afford the most by the biggest, you know, the best, just in case, you know, the grandparents come and stay at Christmas, we need an extra room. Right. And, uh, we need that yard, even though the statistics on yard use are, uh, they don't totally support our need for a yard. <laughs> I think there was a study that uh, UCLA did, I think, at one point that showed that um, kids were using it like 10 or 15% of the time or something, some extremely low amount of time. So. You know, after a while, we just don't use the things we own, and uh, and I, you know, I even find that, and that's, you know, like the, uh, what, what is it? Uh, I wanted, I've wanted a cargo bike for years, for instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, they're like three thousand dollars, three or four thousand dollars, and uh, and I know I'd buy it, and then we would use it like not enough to justify that cost. <laughs> So I rented one the other day, and it cost me fifty bucks for like three or four hours, and uh, maybe I'll rent it again in like a few months. But that's a lot of $50 rentals, and I don't have to maintain it or store it or risk it being stolen or anything. <laughs> so, you know, the idea of just paying for what, you're, um, you, know, what you need uh, when you need it is, is a big uh, theme of mine, too, in addition to valuing your time. And I just think people don't value their time at any – they don't even value it at what their employer values it at, at like on an hourly basis, let alone, you know, if uh, – if you valued it on what you felt it was worth yourself, which is in probably invariably more than what you get paid. <laughs> Presumably, uh, in your case, you know, your kids are, are still young, but are going to grow. And there's going to come a time, I, I assume, when the pressure to upsize is going to increase. You know, your, your kids grow. And as kids turn to teens, that desire for space in their own space typically would grow. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your what's your plan in that case as uh, as kids grow into beings that might be taller than you at some point 
Yeah, it's funny because I've heard from people with, um, you know, four or five kids who have lived their whole lives in, uh, you know, apartments in Chicago or New York or other big cities like that. Um, so, I, and I've got, the, I get this question a lot, like, just wait until they're teenagers, that, you know, and then it's all just going to come crashing in. And the, the great thing about cities is they have what we call like third places or third spaces, uh, you know, so the library, the coffee shop, the community center, all sorts of places that kids and adults can go when they need to get out and get some privacy. And it's just like a, it's across the street or it's three blocks away. Uh, and I think that the role of those places will be increased. I mean, we take great advantage of them now for, you know, more in a programmed way, but I think they'll increase in a, that the role of them will increase in a less scheduled, uh, sort of informal way. So we have a fantastic public library two blocks away. It's the main Vancouver Central Library with everything from like green screens to podcasting equipment to computer workstations, you know, animation uh, meeting rooms, like everything you can use for free just with your library card. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's an immense resource that if you're a you know, if you're a teenager and you're looking to create something, you know, that's a place you can go if home is not suitable. And, um, and that's what I was doing a lot as, as a kid is just, you know, like designing board games, for instance. And if I could go somewhere that, where I could do that at a more professional level, then I would have. What do you hope that your kids uh, gain from this experience of, you know, living downtown and, and living in a condo all, all together? I think... I really just want them to see that their reality is bigger than what they're sort of told it can be. <laughs> so we have such a very standard narrative, especially here in uh, Canada, where it's just like everyone's headed towards marriage and a house and two, you know, two cars. Like that's that's sort of like that that life that's perfect. Mm-hmm. And I want them to see that people construct their lives in a bunch of different ways. And living downtown is also a part of that. You get to bump into a lot of diverse people people that are on the low end of the income spectrum and even on the high end, I guess. I don't have too many rich friends, but, (laughs) you know, so I think the best thing they could take out of this is an appreciation that how they configure their life is up to them. And there are actually more options and things that they, they can do that, that are beyond what maybe convention would dictate that they're able to do. So plenty of people say that we're not able to do this and we've been doing it happily for four and a bit years now. And, uh, and then like, I constantly get copied into discussions on Twitter where somebody said, oh, I couldn't possibly go without a car. I have too many kids. Somebody's, you know, it's like a bat signal. Somebody throws up to have me wade in with some obnoxious point of view. But like, (laughs) you know, which I try to refrain from being too obnoxious. But, you know, yeah, you can go without a car, you know, and uh, and have five kids. Like, yes, it means we don't drive like 60 kilometers to go do something all the time. Like uh, we did... uh, a few months ago, we went to our favorite reptile rescue place. It was closing down. So, I, you know, we drove like, I think it was 75 kilometers each way. It was mind bending. Uh, <laughs> you know, for somebody like me that doesn't drive much, it's just like horrifying. But you get like a car share and you, t- you know, go out there. So there are occasions where we do take big trips like that. You know, so we're not totally depriving ourselves of like the larger city. But we get so much right within our, you know, a few blocks of our doorstep that we don't really need to. So... I think, uh, yeah, going back to your original question, if they can just uh, be flexible with how they define their lives, because they're going to need to be adaptable. Like, we have no reason to think that all of a sudden affordability is going to get dramatically better. I'd love it if it did. And I'm hoping through Abundant Housing Vancouver and groups like that, we can lobby for it to be uh, more affordable. But um, 
I think we're, regardless of affordability, sustainability is another thing. We just have to live lighter, fewer cars, more dense housing. And if they're prepared for that and not wondering what it would be like, then I'll, I've done my job. What do you think that you have gained from this, uh, of, of spending so much time in this small space with, with all of your kids and, um, and choosing to forego you know, the big house in the suburbs with a fence and, and a yard and, and choosing to, to spend it in the condo instead? So when I lived in Mexico, I was traveling a lot. Like I was married, traveling a lot. We had a huge amount of help around the house because you could afford it. Uh, you know, you know, when I was home, I was I didn't was really sort of not a very good dad. I didn't really know how to parent just because you're not acclimated to it, and other people are doing it for, for the most part. And uh, you know, like you just you didn't really feel very good about your parenting, and like you were giving your kids a a great representation of what a fulfilled, <laughs> you know, father figure should be basically. So now I spend a huge amount of, of time with them. I'm self-employed so I can like adapt my schedule to fit theirs. I'm, you know, very well connected to their lives. Like because we live in a relatively small space, we all have to develop a, a lot of uh, sort of empathy for, you know, if somebody wants a bit of quiet time versus uh, somebody else wanting to play just dance in the living room. Um, I think, you know, it's connected me emotionally to my kids far more than if I was just in a big house and was so, you know, spending most of my time commuting, working, and then just sort of shuttling them around to sort of check those boxes of extracurricular activities. Like, I actually, you know, know what my kids think now. And, <laughs> and to me, it's like, I can work, you know, if I, if I live long enough, I can work when they're out of the house, uh, like when they grow up. Um, but this is the time where I want to kind of be around and be present. And that's the best thing it's given me is like a level of presence and a learning about who I am as a father that I don't think I would have had if I had just sort of continued on doing what I was doing. Adrian, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Martin. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Adrian, head over to 5kids1condo.com. And if you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor by hitting subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review, which helps a bunch. The biggest thing you can do, though, is spread this podcast to anyone and everyone you know. Share it with someone else you think might like it. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.